Hello and welcome to the Language Revolution podcast. My name is Kate Hamilton. I'm a languages teacher and founder of Babel Babies. The aim of this podcast is to get people talking about talking. So without further ado, let's get started. In the previous episode, Michael Rosen and I were discussing wonderful words and talking and why these things matter to adults and how we could help children fall in love with words. In primary school these days, learning about words is called literacy. Hello again, Michael. Hello. Uh, let's have a chat about literacy. What has changed about how we teach children to appreciate words in schools? Yes, well, let's do a little bit of history here. Mm. So the word literacy has been around for a long time. And obviously, it's got a basic core, fairly objective meaning of the idea that literacy in the heart of it, it's making letters. Mm. So anything to do with the making of letters, as we used to do on the page, but now also on a screen, that is being literate. So you might think, well, that's quite a nice word. It covers just absolutely everything. Um, signs that you see out in the street, serial packets, William Shakespeare, it's all literacy. And you might think, well, that's good. The problem is, in my mind, is how it's used in education because it's become a thing in itself, particularly in primary schools. So what you do is do literacy, and that means making letters, relating letters to sounds called phonics, um, and that in a way what's most important is for the a child to make a sentence or to understand a sentence. Now you say, well, what could be possibly be wrong with that? Hmm. Well, because language is much more than sentences on a page. And if you just think, well, all the child's got to do is make a sentence, well, then you think of language as something rather mechanical. So you might say a sentence goes, uh, I ate a cake. And then you make a better sentence by saying, when I was... Uh, staying at my granny's, I ate a cake. And you go, oh, that's very good, because now we've got a when clause in front of it. Oh, that's very good. Oh, and it's in front, so it's fronted. Oh, now we've got some more jargon. Oh, what is it? It's a fronted adverbial. Oh, that's excited. exciting. Oh, now what about the cake? Can we make that a bit bigger? So it's a, it's a fruit cake. Oh, lovely. Very good. Oh, can we make it better than that? Can we say it's a, it was a, a great big fruit cake? And now we've got what's called an expanded noun phrase. And now can we say the great big fruitcake which mummy had bought? Oh, that's brilliant because now we've got a relative clause as well. And all this way of talking, I mean, it makes sense, but at another level it doesn't make sense because none of it is motivated by what you want to say, why you want to say it, what you feel about it, whether anybody's going to be interested in reading it. Mm. So what we've done is abstracted language away from what it's for, which is to say things that we care about and feel about and express to others. So what a weird idea. And we call it literacy and we go, well done. That child had a relative clause, a fronted adverbial, an expanded noun phrase. Oh, look, and the subject agreed with the verb because it said, you know, that the, the cake was or something like that instead of the cake were. Uh, and I went instead of I, I, I gone. Oh, it's correct. Oh, brilliant. And now everything's solved. Mm. And I would say, well, no, because let's go back to what this stuff is for. Why have we got language, written and oral, and, and the way they intersect? And it's to express important things and trivial things, but it's in order to, well, it's part of human behaviour. Mm -hmm. So just as I'm sitting here and you're sitting there and we're talking to each other, that's part of human behaviour. I will go out, I'll go to a cafe maybe and have my lunch. 
Well, that's part of human behaviour, but so is talk and writing. And what we do in schools over and over again, through this word literacy, I'm not going to blame the word itself, it's the way it's been co-opted, is to separate it off from what it's for. So, given that my hat is by and large not in science education, but in broadly speaking in the humanities, so I would say, well, we did have another word and it was called literature. So it does include that lit bit, mm -hmm. which means letters. But the thing about literature, in our funny old fuddy-duddy ways in the 50s, we said, well, literature is drama, poetry and novels. And these are these kind of three pillars of literature. And in a rather pompous way, our teachers and others said, well, you know, great literature is great in itself. Please bow down and respect it. I'm now going to read you Keats's poem on a Grecian urn. And it finishes, beauty is truth, truth, beauty. That's all you know. That's all you need to know. And we had to all bow down and go, yes, this is great. Now, it doesn't mean you have to do that. But in a way, there was something quite positive behind it all, which was that great humanistic and aesthetic ideas are expressed through those three pillars. The word literacy, we didn't talk about. Mm. Now translate that down to very young children, to three-year-olds or to eight-year-olds, and say, well, what if you took that word literature and said, well, just as it, we said it was important, and our teachers said it was important, and here's a bit of Shakespeare, and here's a poem by Keats, whatever we said when we were in sixth form, but you said, look, what's the best that's been written for three-year-olds? It's where the wild things are. Or it's um, a lovely song, which has got words in it. It might be, say, I'm Lord of the Dance. You know, I am Lord of the Dance, said he. You know, and these are beautiful and powerful things that say important things that move us and excite us and make us laugh or any of those things. Then I think, well, the literacy is the servant to the literature. Mm hmm not the way we have it at the moment, that so long as you've got these things they call building blocks, and I don't even regard them as building blocks, let it be said, then everything else will fall into place. I think just the opposite. We want literature in school because this enables children to reflect on who they are, where they come from, where they're going, what life's like. It enables you to do those things and to also go into other rooms that you don't have in your life. You go into the room of what it means to let's say, travel a lot or what it means to imagine what it might have been like in ancient Greece where, you know, if you finished at the end of a war and then you try to get home and you've got, you know, sidetracked into having to deal with monsters or um, someone who wants to turn you into a pig and that you get sidetracked into that and that these have symbolic meanings. You see, this is the power of literature is that it creates images, talking pictures, that have symbolic meanings. And children between the ages of 5 and 11 and 12, they start discovering this, that it's real but not real, that these things they're looking at represent. So people have said, we're going on a bear hunt. Well, they're not really going on a bear hunt, are they? Because, you know, it doesn't look very real. It looks like it's going on in Cornwall somewhere. There are not many bears in Cornwall. <laughs> so what is it? What is this bear that they're going to get and then run away from? Mm. So, it, it, all right, a three-year-old won't think like that, but a 10-year-old might get the idea that a book like that's about life's travails. Again, they won't use that phrase, but, well, in a way, what do we do every day? We get up in the morning and you can't go over it and you can't go under it. You know what you've got to do? Go through it. Yeah. And so, I mean, the hint is in what a beautiful day. It's there. And so I didn't make those lines up, by the way. That was in the folk poem that mm -hmm. pre-existed me. Um, so... You know, this is what literature can do. 
And if we make literacy the king, and literature just comes along, kind of dragged along, oh, well, people fruit, say to me sometimes... Examples. Yeah, well, sometimes people say, and I always get said, well, this book's really good because it's... And then they give a literacy argument about it. Oh, well, this book's really good because it's got lots of adjectives. Or this book's good because it's very good for vocabulary. Mm. And I just think this is tragic. Some of the greatest poems ever been written by people like William Carlos Williams, you know, who wrote in the simplest possible language in order to express the most profound things. Mm. And so, you know, it isn't about the denseness of the vocabulary or whether adjectives have been squeezed in or, heaven forbid, you know, loads and loads of adverbs, you know, most adverbs you can ban, I think. <laughs> um, so I'm very uh, disappointed by the fact that literacy has become the master. Mm. And I'll use that sexist term, but it is very much the idea that we are sort of under the kind of, well, uh, under, under the stick of literacy and that this dominates everything. When I think that the motor, the great cog that drives literacy is literature. Mm. I mean, not only, because obviously, you know, there's languages in science, languages in history, languages in geography, and when this is exciting and grabs you, then, again, that can help you become literate. So uh, I'm not so humanities-bound that I think the only way you can kind of become literate is to love um, uh, I Wandered Lonely as a Cloud, you know, by Wordsworth. It might be because you got really excited by the fact of the way uh, Eisenbard, Kingdom Brunel... Uh, dug the first tunnel underneath the Thames that uh, enabled the railway to go along and it might excite you because of the descriptions of the fact those poor blokes when they were working in it um, that uh, the Thames was leaking onto them and then you bear in mind what the Thames was which was an open sewer mm. and so as those blokes dug that tunnel which you can go through every day on the overground line which excites me um, you go through Eisenbard Kingdom Brunel's tunnel uh, that uh, the sewage was leaking onto them as they dug the tunnel with spades. Wow. Which is amazing. Um, so that might excite you. But it's about the passion, isn't it? Yes. So it's just, you know, are we actually encouraging our children to express their passions? My son's obsessed with flags. He knows every flag of all the American states and he can talk to you for hours about those. It doesn't matter what the passion is. It's Exactly. You know, the words... I can give an analogous heat. My son got very interested in flags and loved being tested on them and loved finding out that I didn't know what the flags were, which is very important in a son-dad relationship. Dad doesn't know the flag for Libya, that sort of thing. It's very <laughs> exciting. He learned how to say the names of the countries, so yeah. that was an exciting thing. So I would never call that literacy. I mean, literacy is the servant, the, the passion about the flag. Again, he loves football. I love football. We talk about football all the time. He loves knowing more about football than I do, and he reads football biographies. Mm. So he reads, you know, Zlatan Ibrahimovic or Gary Neville and these people, and he reads these. Now, with my literary hat on, I glance at these, and, of course, they're, in fact, very literary. You know, quite often it's Cinderella. That's what the story is. It's mm. rags to riches. You know, you take somebody like Maradona or Pele and people like this, they came from unbelievable, I'm not sure about Pele, but anyway, came from very poor backgrounds, um, and then they rise up through the things that they do and they learn certain things about life and they tell you. Um, they may not marry a Prince Charming, but sometimes in a way they, they, they get into the top club in the world, whether it's Barcelona or Real Madrid or whatever it is. Well, that's their Cinderella moment. They found their Prince Charming. Um, 
And then you quite often get quite a nice other thing, a sort of post-Cinderella story, where they kind of reflect on this thing. You know, well, I did marry Prince, I did get into this top team, but, you know, I screwed up a bit here and whatever. So you sometimes get the kind of flawed genius type thing, so you get a bit of hubris. So these books, I think, are fascinating. Now, of course, he, you know, if I said that to him, he'd just throw me out the house. I wouldn't be allowed back in. Um, <laughs> but the, uh, I just think, well, isn't that interesting? You see, it's a form of literature that's acceptable to him. And, mm. and it's, you know, it's wonderful. It's got dialogue. It's mm. got passion. But, you know, to call it literacy, I just, you know, some little bit of me just died when I said that. I just thought, oh, dear, oh, dear, you know. Mm. And yet, originally, I mean, there's nothing wrong with the word at all. You know, if you go to the British Museum and you talk to uh, that wonderful chap, Irving, um, who, who's in charge of the Sumerian tablets, you know, this is the birth of literacy. What's more exciting than that? So exciting. You know, these little tablets that were found in the Nineveh desert and you've got a little cuneiform thing that makes the little indentations in the wet clay. And, you know, these people were... First of all, just using it in order to measure the bags of flour and then to create what we is now our oldest epic literature, the story of Gilgamesh. And there it is. And some of them they found, oh, my goodness, look, it tells the story of the flood. Ah, this is amazing. There's yeah. a story that precedes the biblical version of the flood and it's all on these tablets. Now, that's literacy. But, you know, it's very, very exciting. But the thing that they wanted to do, those people was tell a story yep. in order to excite and inform each other about, you know, what is a good ruler, you know, which obsesses ancient peoples. You know, does a bad ruler wreck society? Does a good ruler make it uh, society good? What is a good ruler and what happens if um, they're not aware of their own failings, all these sorts of things, you know, and you just think, call that, you know, call the Odyssey, call Hamlet literacy. No, thank you. So... What advice would you give to a teacher starting out in their career for encouraging a love of language and storytelling in their pupils? What kind of things should they have in their essential kit? Anything that is written that will excite the children in front of you and to be constantly changing it and not sitting back and saying, well, they all love Matilda, so I'll do Matilda again. Because in very subtle ways with your body language, Matilda will become more will become boring because you're so familiar with it. So you must think of a kind of permanent revolution approach to literacy that whatever you bring in must in some way or another excite you, mystify you, puzzle you. Um, it might be something that you've read over and over again, as long as you're finding new meanings and being excited by it and curious and also excited by the fact that the children or the students in front of you will find new meanings in it. So maybe it's The Tempest. So Shakespeare's The Tempest is a very odd play. At one moment it sort of seems like a fairy tale, but then there's these various layers in society. You know, you've got these posh courtier people who are doing horrible things to each other. Uh, you've got the great innocent lovers of uh, Ferdinand and Miranda. And then you've got this sort of subclass of uh, people who've come onto the island, the, the bosun and the cook, uh, but also the subclass on the island. So suddenly you've got something that's got many layers of meaning. Now, if you approach a play like that, whether it's with primary school children, which you can, or with secondary, if you're doing, doing The Tempest at GCSE or A-level, there's many different ways in which if you enable the students to explore these things 
and you can set them off researching things. So, for example, I did a sixth form lesson on the Tempest and I said, well, it's quite clear in the, in the Tempest that there's slavery. Okay, so Caliban and Ariel are slaves and they be, both have a different approach. Caliban says, well, I could revolt against slavery and Ariel basically just keeps pleading and Ariel's quite fed up about mm -hmm. it. So I said, well, the play comes out around 1600. What could Shakespeare have possibly known about slavery? So I asked these six formers before I came to see them. And I said, well, look, if you please, can you find out before you come to the lesson anything possible you can find about about what Shakespeare in his own lifetime could possibly have known about slavery? Mm -hmm. And mostly in the books that you have at A-level, it, it only says a little bit. It doesn't say much. But once you get Googling and looking in books, you find out all sorts of other things about the fact that the Elizabethans were some of the first were the first British slavers, if you like, though slavery had happened before in Portugal. But you set them off researching it and then bringing it back and sharing it mm. and then relating that to things that Ariel and Caliban say or indeed that Prospero says to them. So suddenly you're discovering new layers because the students are bringing in things. And so you're playing to, if you like, the students' own capabilities. So if you do that, that's another way of exploring things, is that you invite students to research things, to render a book, to come up with new meanings for you as a teacher so that it's interesting for you. Mm. Another thing is an attitude to language. Now, I don't know whether... I have the impression, both from my own children but from others, that it, embedded in their idea is that they don't really own language. Language belongs to clever people called teachers, even cleverer people who write dictionaries, and clever people who talk about language, as we are now indeed, and that somehow the language belongs, and I'm going to say us, it belongs to like old white people like me, and that somehow or other I own language, and that I'm a child, I'm a four-year-old or I'm a 15-year-old, I don't own language, I just come and I get it from school. Now, this seems to me, nobody says that. That's something that you kind of get by implication. And I think it is so sad and completely false because, you know, a naught-year-old owns language because they come into the world and the, some of the first things they hear is people going, oh, aren't you lovely? You lovely little baby. I love you. I love you. Oh, I kiss the baby. And they're hearing language right from the start. So it's said to them. Mm-hmm. So a naught-year-old owns language and a hundred-year-old owns language and we all own it. Nobody owns it more than other people. Some people gas on about it like I am now. But the point is we all own it, right? I mean, so it belongs to all of us. It's a common possession, you know, like the air and so on. I mean, it's humans invented it, not, not, not Shakespeare didn't invent language. I mean, he invented some words, agreed, but, you know, he didn't invent language itself. So I think one of our jobs in schools is to try and make that clear, whether we're making it clear to three-year-olds or to secondary kids, that we're saying, look, you own language. Now, to do that, you've got to set up ways in which that becomes evident. And one of the ways I say is that you need scrapbooks. You need to get the idea that you can collect language, which is what writers do. Yeah. So I go into school, go into primary schools, and there's quite often a chunk on the wall and there's a big sign up and it says, wow words, right? And then teachers have been told to put up words like gloomy because gloomy is a better word than dark. 
Now, at this point, I then pull my hair out and say, no, every word is a wow word. You know, we, I was talking in the in the previous uh, podcast, I was talking about D.H. Lawrence, and he wrote a poem, we said, called Bat and Snake. So he didn't call it the snake, mm-hmm. he didn't call it a snake, and he didn't call it snakes. He wanted to talk about snakes, so he had a choice, didn't he? Snakes, snake, the snake, a snake, and you could say some snakes or any snake. So he had a choice. Yes. And he chose snakes. So what he did is he lost the plural bit, the snakes, and he lost those those and ers and innies and sums, and he got rid of all that because he wanted to be kind of clean and stark. Mm. Yeah? So he made a choice, right, to drop off those words. So he's playing with the idea that even these tiny little trivial words like the and er and an and and some and any, they matter. And when they're there, it makes one meaning. And when they're not there, it's another meaning. So I would say the er and some and any, they're wow words. They're as much wow as anything else. Or indeed, leaving them off is wow, which Mm -hmm. is exactly what he did. He wanted to shock his readers by just calling it snake. People at that time wouldn't have normally seen something like that. It's become a bit of a sort of cult these days in advertising and the rest of it. You know, I go to a restaurant called Eat, right? <laughs> it's not called Eating or Eating Out or Have Some Food or, you know, or Jim's Eatery. It's just called Eat because it's meant to be sort of clean and sharp and hard-edged, yes. you know. So, you know, we do a lot of that nowadays, but, you know, some of it comes from that period. So I say, well, look, forget the... Okay, if you want the wow words, we'll have them. But actually, if you really want to make an effect on kids' language... You show them and demonstrate that language is everywhere and it's for us. So if you see a funny advert, mm. bring it in, stick it in the scrapbook or stick it up on a, on a scrapbook wall, a scrap wall. We all know about screenshots. You know, it's, it's one of the positive, very positive things, I think, about digital art and all the rest of it and digital writing is that you can just take screen grabs, grab anything you want, stick it in a tweet, stick it on Facebook, and you can find language and pictures and images and play with them. So you could do that in the classroom. So if you hear a line from a song and you think that's brilliant, mm. bring it in. If you hear something funny where your mum or dad or granny or granddad got language a bit muddled up or they said something really profound in an incredible phrase, you know, if there's funny words that you, that your grandparents said or if there's a line from a film, you know, what do we do? You know, those of us who watch films, you know, we go, here's looking at your kid and play it again, Sam, even if they don't, or, you know, in Great Expectations, what larks, Pip. Quite often, of course, these lines aren't actually in the books or the films, but never mind, (laughs) we think they are. Well, you grab those and you show students, you show children that language is for us to explore, just as we might say, well, we're going to go to the woods and we're going to look for mini beasts. We're going to go into the woods of language yeah. and find mini beasts. We're going to find things that appeal to us. And that fascinate us. And fascinate us, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And interest us. And why? And then, of course, what you know, I can see up on the wall is a little sign up on the wall in the studio, and it says Bravo. And I'm thinking, why has someone cut out the word Bravo? Now, I quite like the word Bravo. Mm. It's fine. It's, it's quite interesting because it's an international word. Bravo in Italian and bravissimo. Um, and in fact, French people say it, bravo, um, and we say it now in English. So, you know, it's it's a lovely international word and somebody has mm. stuck it on a little wooden plaque up on the wall. And, and you think, if, you, if you type it, actually, on a, a phone, it produces an emoji of clapping. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Well, there you go, you see. So there you've got the intersection between words and image. Mm. So that's the fun with emoji. Um, so you you have that. So I would say, well... 
you know, a child could bring that in and then suddenly you find you've got a child in your class who go, oh, well, my dad says bravissimo because my dad's Italian. Mm. And suddenly you're having a conversation about Bravo and then, you know, I don't know, a grandparent will come in and say, oh, well, I used to watch a TV programme. It was called Juliet Bravo um, or whatever it was called. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then, of course, you could look at the alphabet, uh, you know, the, the Alpha Bravo yes. uh, alphabet. Yes, Sierra Foxtrot. Exactly. And, and, you know, that's just from one word. On the other hand, other people look at it and go, you know, what's the point? Mm-hmm. But then you have a, a discussion about language. So I say... Make your classrooms language laboratories mm. or language scrapbooks and put anything up for grabs, anything that people say or that's puzzling or that's amazing or funny. And it can be signs. It could be the way in which, you know, for example, you know, I noticed that in the tube now in the London Underground, there's a little sign that says help point. Yeah. And I told my son, I said, you know what that says? He said, yeah, it says help point. I said, no, no, it says help point. <laughs> so when we go past it, all right, I'll shout help and you point, okay? Eyes rolling, of course, you know, dad, maniac, you know. And, of course, when we get to it and I go help, I go point, you see, like that. I'm now pointing, listeners. Okay, so help point. And uh, he just about smiles at it. And I think, well, that's sort of, you can do that. I told him you sometimes see on the, <laughs> on the pavements, a kind of manhole cover, and it says on it, C-A-T-V. Mm-hmm. And it's cable telly, as far as I know. But I told my son that it's cat TV <laughs> and that there's cats down there watching telly underneath the yep. underneath the manhole cover and that they're just sitting around going, you know, and if you just lift it up, you'll see it's where the cats go at night to watch telly. And he was about four at the time. Yes. And, uh, no, a bit older. He was about six. And he just half believed me. He half believed me that there really were cats down there watching telly. Well, you know, that's fun that teachers can do. They can make up stuff with signs and language, but also you're inviting the children, you know, to pull words apart and put them together again. I said I met a really bubbly bloke the other day. He was called Al Kazeltzer. Um <laughs> And, uh, you know, you show that when you segment words, you find new meanings. So in actual fact, you're playing, if you want the technical word, with the morphology of words. Mm-hmm. You're playing with how language is, how we morph it, in other words, how we move it and shape it in order to make new meanings. You know, you take the word uh, account and then you can make it accountable and then you can make something unaccountable. Mm. So you put bits on it and take bits off it. You break the words up and you find rude words, which is always fun, uh, or non-rude words in the middle of words and you can play about it. So... You know, you've got Bravo there and you've got Rav and Bra. That's really funny, isn't it? You know, Bras are really funny. So you've got Vo, V-O, voiceover. So you can play with all these things with just one word. Mm. You can show kids that. I think um, you were kind of moving into the next bit of the topic that I'd like to talk about, actually, because I feel that literacy is kind of siphoning English off from languages. And I've actually had a 16-year-old student say that English isn't a language, miss. You know, foreign languages, they're languages like French and German. English, he said, that's not a language, you know. And it's, it seems to have become sort of so bizarrely mutated into literacy. Mm. It's, it's not related. And in the UK, we have um, what we might call a crisis about languages. We don't have enough students studying um, languages at university. So we're rapidly closing university modern languages departments. You know, it's just not valued as a subject anymore. Um, and perhaps 
part of that issue is that way down the, the line when children are much younger, they're not being told that they are also linguists because English is a is a language like any other. We've seemed to have made foreign languages the study of language and literacy is bizarrely unrelated. But like you were just saying, you know, it's all very interrelated. You weaved French and Italian and English. It's all one big network, isn't it? Absolutely. And I, I would even put my finger on it and say that there is a, a prime cause, and I would say it's the way grammar is taught. Mm. So the way grammar is taught in primary schools, the so-called SPAG, Spelling, Punctuation and Grammar, or now GPS as it's called, Grammar, Punctuation and Spelling. But the, the chunk of that which is taught grammar, it's not actually about language. Mm. What is the grammar that's taught in primary schools is like maths. What it does is it reduces language to a set of formulae. So it says that this word in the sentence, uh, I am in a studio, this word is X, and you give it a label. And you say this word is doing some, is something else. And then you create a little function pattern, and you say there's a subject and a verb tend not to talk about objects so much anyway and there's adjectives and adverbs and they're doing something they're modifying or they're qualifying and you give them these formulae and what it is as a system it's a way of making an abstract of something that's very complex and is not determined by that abstract set of rules what determines language is our interactions with it in other words we're talking we have a purpose. Me and you now, we have a purpose. We're talking, we're exploring ideas, and we hope people are going to be interested when they listen. Mm -hmm. So we're thinking of examples, and we're talking in that way. That's determining how we talk. But also there's a genre to how we talk, which is called the interview. Yes. And that's a genre. And you've prepared some questions, and I'm ready for that. So I'm in a certain shape to do that. And we're sitting opposite each other on a table. So that's determining it, just as... When Shakespeare sat down to write a play, he had a model in an ancient Roman type of play, and he said, well, I'd like to write a play like that, and I'm going to use this story and stick it into this model produced by these ancient Roman guys. So that's genre. So we've got two major determinants going on there, one genre, and the other one, the social situation that we're in. And you might say there are other determinants, like the fact that you're a woman and I'm a man and you've got a certain attitude to me and then since I've got to know you now, then I've got an attitude to you and that's shaping the way I'm talking. I'm not using swear words. I, I might do at home. So in other words, I'm making choices. Yes. When I'm at home and rowing, having joke rows with my son, we swear a lot. That's quite funny. But it's within the confines of the front room and that's fine. That's in a sort of safe space. Yes, but we're not doing that now because we think that's not, is the word, appropriate so we're making appropriacy decisions. So we've got three determinants there that are really powerful on what kind of language we're using. Now go back to that spag stuff. That spag stuff doesn't take into account any of that. It just says, here is a good sentence. Or it might say, here is an informal sentence, as if somehow we're all agreed and we know what that is. And you're supposed to correct that or do something in the test where you turn that round. So it's not about language in use and why language is the shape, the many, many shapes that it's in and how it appears and how people use it. So small wonder that you've got a student who thinks that what they're doing by saying, hey, you come in 
down the pub later or whatever they might be saying or, you know, are we going to a gig tonight or whatever, that that's not language, that's just life. Mm. And then language is going, je suis, tu, es, il, est. And verb endings. And yeah. verb endings, yeah. exactly, you know. Mm. So, of course, that's what they would think because of the, we've taught them that, which is a complete... I would say, misuse, misunderstanding, distortion yeah. of what language is because it doesn't start from language in use. In fact, I have a sort of little pet thing where I say that really we shouldn't use the word language. We should always say language in use because language is only ever in use. Even when it's a dead language like, let's mm. say, Latin, it was used then and now it's in use if I take it off the page and it says you know, Caesar uh, dumped some dead gauls in a ditch, which is the kind of stuff I had to do at school. <laughs> there, was so, there were always dead gauls in a ditch. I don't know why, but anyway, there's a lot of fossam, fossi um, in a ditch. Mm. But the point was he wrote that for a purpose, and here we were studying it for a purpose. So it's in the shape it is because of the purpose. Yes. Now, that's only then when you say that language in use do you then get a sense that what you talked about, the powerful thing, is these languages are in continuum. They're all connected and intersected. So that, you know, there's there's French words and German words and Dutch words, you know, if we talk about the word skipper, you know, mm -hmm. that this is a Dutch word that we took into English because at that moment the maritime lives of Britain and Holland were interacting. And so rather than calling people captains, they suddenly started talking about skippers. Yeah. So it's the history of the language in use is very powerful. We have this huge, beautiful, incredible thing called the Oxford English Dictionary, which tells you how words change over the years because they're in use. Yes. Not because it's a noun or it's a verb, right? It's because there was a moment when it became necessary to think about and let's say it was uh, have one of these little balconies and because people have been in India for a lot and they noticed they had a word called veranda. And people thought, well, you've got balconies, but also you can have a sort of balcony that's on the ground. Mm. We haven't got a word for a ground balcony, but the Indians have. They've got a word called veranda. So let's nick that. Mm. So they brought it back to England and people said, oh, veranda. Oh, we'll have that. I mean, it's got a bit out of fashion now, but the point is that was necessary at that moment. Yes. So, you know, we'd borrowed we, I said, you know, the language took in the word balcony from French, balcon, and then took in veranda. Or, you know, we've got a one-storey house. How can you have a one-storey house? Well, the houses have to be two-storey. Well, the Indians had a word. It was bungalow, bungala. And so we said, oh, well, now we've got a word for a one-storey house because it's a bit clumsy to walk around going, it's a one-storey house. So now we had bungalow. So where I grew up in Pinner in northwest London, we were surrounded with bungalows. Mm. But I didn't know it was an Indian word. Now, that's language in use. Yes. That came about because of the Raj and the fact that in, the Brits occupied India. And then people came back and started using those words. Now, when we know that, then that's language in use, not this crazy formula way of treating language as if it's just a form of very abstract rules that we're, we have to obey when we talk and write. No, 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 language obeys us. We are the masters and mistresses of language. Language is doing what we want it to do. I really, really agree with you on that. I feel like that sort of parsing is a bit like taking a butterfly and pinning it in an entomology museum. Yeah. And you're, you've lost the beautiful life of that butterfly and seeing it in its habitat. How does it interact in different situations? If you pin it and say, this is an adverb, it's sort of, 
you know, I suppose standard standard language. We have a lot of arguments about there must be a standard way of saying it that everybody needs to learn. We've lost the diversity. Um, well, there's a key thing here is that as human beings, we constantly invent descriptive apparatuses. I mean, if you say you look over there, there's a, there's a drum kit in the corner of the studio here and they got names. So you've got, you know, the snare, you've got the hi-hat, you've got different names for the drums, but that doesn't tell you exactly what they do, right? So if you've got the hi-hat, only a drummer knows what they do. But so you mustn't let the words dominate. They've been created, those names, to enable us then to use the drums in a certain way. But it's not the names that do the work. It's us that does the work in order to make it work for us. They don't tell you mm. in the word itself what it does. Yes, it's sort you of metaphorical. You need to actually, yes, exactly, because mm. it's just a little abstract thing. And again, it doesn't tell you about how they're necessarily going to be used and also the fact that you could use them in a variety of ways. You know, obviously, if you take bongo drums, you, 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 can, you can tap bongo drums with your hands, but you could also use something else to hit a bongo drum if you wanted to. Mm -hmm. So the word doesn't explain it. Now, the problem, when we use that descriptive apparatus that we've invented called adjective and adverb, it's as if that becomes a restriction. Yes. So if it's an adverb, you've got to use it like an adverb. But when you open any book or look at any advert, you can see that people say, well, no, you don't. You can change it around. Shakespeare or others said, but me no buts. You know, proud me no prouds, Juliet's father says. What? Sorry, but proud's an adjective. You can't say proud me no prouds, right? Well, he's really angry. Yeah. He's, he's really angry with Juliet because, you know, she, she doesn't appear to want to marry the perfect man, well-apportioned man, uh, Paris. So he's, he's taking the language and he's pulling it apart. Proud me no prouds. You take a poet like Jared Manley Hopkins, who desperately wanted to show that God was in everything and was beautiful and amazing. Glory be to God for dappled things. And so he wrenched the language about in order, as he felt, to make it so that he could express this incredible complexity of God in life and life in God and the world in God and all those things. I caught this morning, morning's minion, kingdom of daylight, dauphin, dappled dawn, drawn falcon of the underneath him, riding, and off he goes with mm. ripping the grammar apart in order to say something. Now, that's what writing does. It doesn't just have to follow in the tracks. If you take the opening page of Bleak House by Dickens, well, he's got a sentence. It's a really, really long sentence. It's like this. Fog. Capital F, three letters, full stop, fog. So, sorry, sorry, Dickens, you're not allowed to do that. That's not a sentence. You've got to say, there is fog. There is lots of fog. There is, by the side of the river, there is lots of fog. And you've got to have a fronted adverb. Oh, hang on, wait a minute. We need a time clause. Um, all this stuff. And, of course, Dickens said, well, no, I want to express the sense of fog everywhere. So he said, fog, that gives him his little chapter heading, but it isn't, it's in the paragraph. And then he goes off about where all the fog is. And guess what? It becomes metaphorical and it goes all the way mm. to the Lord Chancellor's office because he's saying that what is the law if it isn't a form of fog? And it's just fantastic, that opening to Bleak it House. It is. There it is. The second or third paragraph in Bleak House, you can find it on the internet. And I always think, well, there's an example of somebody saying language is for us. It belongs to all of us. 
Dickens had had this incredibly wide experience of language because he'd been a stenographer in the court, so he could hear people using language in lots of different ways. And you find it, you know, David Copperfield, and he's got this lovely catchphrase, Barkis is willing, mm. right? Well, you know, this is a man who's obviously in love, but he can't say it because he's restricted by the kind of life he's led. So he just wants to say, I'd, Lord, I'd like to marry you, just pass on the message. Barkis, that's himself, is willing. So I'm interested in Peggotty. Barkis is willing. So he can hear these phrases that people use. And, you know, look, there's no adjectives in there. Well, except mm. present participle. Um, but, you know, that, uh, you know, it isn't a great big expanded phrase, but it's got profound meaning. You take um, great expectations and you've got Trab's boy, you know, mocking Pip, the hero, uh, by walking around going, don't know ya, don't know ya. And he's mocking Pip with this powerful little phrase because uh, he's mocking the idea that Pip's become a snob. He's, in fact, doing it with the coal sack, I think, mm. over his shoulders, isn't he? So you get these wonderful images, but not expressed in great big uh, fancy language. Dickens does do that, usually for ironic purposes. But he's showing you that language can express powerful things in just three, three, little, three little words, you know, don't know you, Barkis is willing. I mean, it's incredible. So when you look at these writers, their approach to language isn't like that. Their approach to language isn't, oh, well, I've got to, mm, I've got to get the adverb in, I've got to get the adjective, and it can only obey the rules, you know. And he's also using the power of dialect over and over again. You know, what larks? You know, he's, saying he's got the most powerful line almost in Great Expectations, this dear chap who loves Pip and then, you know, is sort of spurned because Pip is a snob. Mm. And, you know, so the what larks bit is, is like a sort of, it's a lovely little phrase, but you feel it as almost like a sort of tragic irony. Uh, so, you know, it's just so tragic that we've got it round the wrong way. And we say language is this set of, uh, I use the word maths because maths mm. is a wonderful abstraction for the natural world, but language is not. Language is our interactions with all their imperfections. Uh, and variety and that's what we should be that's how we should be talking about language and as I say I would almost like reject the word language and just always call it language in use and in fact if you go back to the great M.A.K. Halliday who looked at the social nature of language and he worked with a man called Peter Doughty and produced a wonderful wonderful set of materials for use in schools called guess what it was called language in use and it came out for schools, 1971. It's an incredible document, um, and it had photocopyable resources inside it for to help students explore language in use, whether it's newspapers, whether it's Shakespeare, whether it's road signs or whatever, because he's, the argument fundamentally is that you find the language to fit the different use. That's what we do for many reasons. Um, and it was there. It was produced with uh, government money, with the help of the school's council, and uh, it was just a bit too um, liberal. Ah, I see. So they pulled it. So, But it's a wonderful document, and the teacher's document that goes with it is really brilliant, written by Peter Doughty with M.A.K. Halliday. Oh, I shall have to look that up. Thank you. So, I mean, we have a really rich multilingual classroom environment these days. I think it's about 22% of children have got English as an additional language. Um, and there are over 360 different languages spoken by children in primary schools. So it seems like we're coming to a point where we need to we need to deal with this wonderful multilingualism in a much more positive way. We don't really know. I think there's a fear on the part of people who only speak English that how will they 
how will they deal with this? It becomes a deficit or a problem that, you know, these children don't have English maybe sort of perfectly already. But it I see it as a wonderful thing that we've got this huge diversity. It's really exciting. But maybe we're not empowering our teachers or training them up on how to, you know, see language, like you say, not as language, but language in use. And, you know, children, they, they might bring all sorts of wonderful diversity in. And if we just looked at, I don't know, linguistics, like this beautiful, wonderful Mount Everest of a subject where we've got the history of English is so multilingual. We've got skull from Norwegian. You know, we've half, if we do one very simple sentence in English, you know, you chop it up, we've got German, French, Latin, Old Norse. We are already multilingual. Yeah. I mean, we kind of need to claw back to a point where we understand that, you know, English is part of that story, isn't it? And part of that Indeed. Network. I mean, it, it's it's a mixture of ignorance and arrogance, I would always say, is that unless we take on board, yes, the multilingual nature of what we call English, that you can hardly, well, you can't, you can't get through a sentence without mm. acknowledging or using the fact that the Normans turned up in 1066 or that the Vikings came earlier, um, that indeed that the Anglo-Saxons were a variety of peoples and that words that are used in, in Newcastle will be different from the way words are used in London. And part of that is because, you know, jutes arrived in one bit and the angles or whatever arrived in another part. Um, so all the roots of English and indeed daily new words are coming into English, our intersection with the American continent um, and the fact that words come in from there for different purposes because their patterns of migration are different. So yes, the whole multilingual nature of English which we do not teach usually mm. in schools. There isn't time to cover the multilingual nature of English. But also, again, that because Britain and most places indeed are at the intersection of many peoples for a variety of reasons, that there is a huge melting pot of languages and that you walk into a classroom and you don't know what languages are there or fragments of languages as well. Mm -hmm. So, for example, I, nobody at any point in my education ever asked me whether I knew any other language other than the ones I was being taught. Whereas in actual fact, you know, I probably had somewhere in the region of maybe maybe two or three hundred Yiddish words and expressions in my head mm. without even knowing that I did because no one ever asked me to explore it. Uh, I probably had, you know, chunks of German and so on because of my dad learning German songs. Um, and then, of course, uh, then learning French in school. Well, that was kind of the permitted way in which you can be. French is very acceptable. But indeed. Yes. So I was in a school <laughs> this week and I was interviewing, well, the children were interviewing me, actually, and we were filming it. But then I thought it was quite intriguing because each child who came in, I could hear that they knew other languages just the way they were speaking. So sure enough, you know, there were, were people who were fluent in some of these children. They were year fours and they were fluent in Romanian, Polish, Spanish, uh, uh, as just a, a basic minimum I could mm. just see. And they were, in fact, I got them to talk in their own languages uh, in a school environment, oh, which brilliant. is quite intriguing to see it. Because um, there isn't any place in the curriculum. You can create mm. days. Primary schools sometimes are quite good at creating kind of a day when we share stuff, but quite yeah. often it's not at a linguistic level. On the other hand, I went into a school in Redbridge and they have a language of the week. Right. Right. So they have a language of the week. They have an internal CCTV system. And a child comes onto the screen and says, hello, how are you to everybody in that child's language? 
Then they might sing a song or say something and then translate it and explain to everybody what it is. Um, and it's a little 30-second, one-minute item of a language of the week well, that's by a brilliant. child. It's so much and better I, than just having sort of a multilingual display board in the reception. The word welcome in eight yeah, languages, yes. none of which are spoken by the children. Mm. And anyway, nobody says welcome. So it's a very odd sort of thing they invented there, which was a shame. But anyway, but I just thought this was wonderful. In fact, we did it on our radio programme, Word of Mouth. We'd, we went there and talked to her. I'd love to revisit it. Mm. But it was a school in Redbridge um, in East London. So there are many ways in which you can respect and use, if you like, the what a friend of mine wrote a book called The Resources of Classroom Language many years ago when we were getting interested in these things. And you don't know what the resources of the classroom language are until you explore it. Mm -hmm. I mean, you would think we could have a subject called The Resources of Classroom Language in which we found out what we know. And one way to do it is to do what I call language maps. So you create a spidergram. You put yourself in the middle. Mm -hmm. If you like, you can make it a portrait. And then you do lines off the portrait of you. And you write brother, sister, if you've got any of them, mum, dad, if you've got them. And then you put granny, granddad, whatever you call them, uncle, auntie. And you could just start with that. And you could say, well, think of anything that mum, dad, granny, grandparents say that is a bit different from the way you're speaking now. A little bit different, something that mum says or dad says. And if it's another language, you can use that. Obviously, if you're doing it, I've done it with secondary pupils, done it with year sixes. And you start building up a map of language use around that is in your life. And then you get discussing. You, you, you hold these up and you talk about them. And you say, well, why does granny say, death doesn't wear creaky boots? My God, what does that mean? Well... And they say, well, it means that you never know when death is going to come. Well, where does that come from? Uh, where, where's Granny from? I think she's from Ireland. Oh, really? So now suddenly you have a picture. You have a picture of a culture and of a life that is using a word like death doesn't wear creaky boots that has come into this child's life that is different from the next child who says, oh, well, my Granny says that an owl is an owl that goes... And that means uh, get your hair done because you're going to get married in the morning. <laughs> and you say, why is that? Because the owl is saying, koifala. What language is that? Well, we call it patois. Really? Koifala. Ah, French. Coiffe. Coiffe la. So patois. Coif. La. It. Koifala. So get your hair cut because you're going to get. So that's the little owl. In central France, there goes. So suddenly you've got these things coming up out of language maps. And then you say, well, can you write the language in any shape or form? So some people maybe they can write Cantonese or Mandarin, let's say, and they can do some of the, 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 the letters. I shouldn't really call them letters, uh, the symbols. Um, and so you then explore these things using the resources of classroom language. But, I mean, it may be that when people say, oh, well, no, we're monocultural. But actually, when you explore mm -hmm. these things, you nearly always find, you know, people used to say, my classroom, I look, I've got a photograph of my classroom and I look at it. And I'd say, oh, well, it's monocultural. Well, for a start, I'm there. So I'm not whatever that monoculture is. There's me there. There's also a little guy there called Jeremy. And I seem to remember him saying that one of his parents or grandparents was Indian. 
So there's little Jeremy there. And then along there, there's Alison, and she had a Scots name, and she I remember her saying she had Scots parents. Mm. And then I can see some others, Jill. Now, I know that her parents or grandparents were Irish. So suddenly it's not quite so monocultural as it appears. So you then go around, and they're just the ones that I remember just for, as a child. Do you see yeah, what I mean? But there yeah. may be many others. So even you look at that classroom, there's a classroom of white kids who you might say, oh, well, that's, that's monocultural. Well, yes and no. You know, my best friend, Brian Harrison, he had a, his grandmother came from Gillingham in Kent. And mm. I could hear when I used to go over there, she had a very strong accent. She had an old yeah. Kent accent. So if we'd done a language map, imagine that. Mm. It may be that he would have suddenly gone into, well, we do opping down in Kent. Might, <laughs> a bit of that might have popped up. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So even when it, people think it's monocultural, nearly always, you know, it isn't you have a class of 30 kids who've all come from that one place, all their parents, all their grandparents, all their great-grandparents all came from that one place. There may be, I don't know, some places where that's the case. But, I mean, you know, if you go to the Orkneys, and, of course, there's Brit hippies living in the Orkneys now. So even in a little village school in the Orkneys, they're not all Orkney people. Well, then you've got such a strong link with, um, you know, Norway there. Yes, so, indeed. You, know, you really aren't – nobody's isolated in that kind of way. Even if we're sitting on the sofa eating pizza, we've got Persian sofas and Italian pizzas. That's just – It's the nature you know. of culture and language and languages are expressing that diversity – and it would be lovely, wouldn't it, if some or other, that just as we say, let's go to the woods, find mini beasts, bring them back and discuss where do mini beasts live, discover the, the ecosystem. You know, that's what we, we talk about. You know, the, when you take find an earthworm, the earthworm doesn't exist in its isolation. The earthworm exists because there's insects and there's the degeneration, the, the rotting of leaves and all that sort of stuff. And we, we're supposed to study biology that way, the idea that any environment has got intersecting features well, well we language is, don't we? yes. the language yeah. language and languages is the same thing they're interacting you know I, it was a nice little moment when I was interviewing these two children or they were interviewing me and one of them was Spanish and the other was Romanian and I was asking them to say things in Spanish and Romanian and then the, <laughs> the Spanish girl looked at me remember these are year fours and she said you know she said Michael Rosen I can understand some of the words she says in Romanian. Mm. And then the Romanian girl said, yes. And I said, oh, right. Why do you think that is? And soon we were talking about the fact that, of course, as we know, Romance languages, that the Romans were in Spain and the Romans were in Romania. And that, of course, that's the reason. But they had discovered these two girls by playing together and playing with their languages, not in class as it happens, but in the playground, That their languages were related. Well, and they... it, it, it's, you know, the children, they discover these things for themselves. I remember my son, he came home with these lovely maps, like I already mentioned he likes geography, of the Latin, um, the Roman sort of invasion of Europe. And you could see how the Celtic people had been pushed across to the sides of Europe. And I said, oh, you know, did your teacher mention that, you know, the Celtic languages, they got pushed aside as well. And that's why you've got Breton and Cornish and Welsh and Gaelic. And he said, oh, no, mummy, only you talk about that kind of thing. But, you know, the the children, they do see these connections and they're, they're trying to make sense of the world, aren't they? And they go out, you know, from birth, seeing the world around them, trying to fit stuff together. And it just seems to me that in school, we're trying to siphon everything off into different sections and not let them connect 
things well and also the there way. is the great god english so mm. the the problem is is that of course we're very proud that we speak english and english is a lovely language of course all languages are lovely and that's fine and there are these lovely things that are expressed through english uh and so on but actually in order to understand that it's actually better to understand that by understanding this eco systems yes. of language you know there's moments of stability and then things change you know if you landed in elizabethan london you know, there were intersecting languages at that moment, mm. you know, that there were sailors coming in from all over the world. If you were along by the side of the Thames, that was a diverse multicultural society along by the side of the Thames. You know, if you're looking at, say, again, Shakespeare, somebody like that, this is a language in movement, dynamic mm. movement. You know, you can see it, you know, no, even even... We don't even understand change. We mm. don't even treat language as a changing thing. You know, if you say, well, look, isn't it odd that the way people used to ask questions was to invert things? You'd say, like you, that food. But we don't do that. We can only invert what we call the auxiliaries. Do you, have you? We can only invert them to make questions. So in order to make questions, we've got to use this do word, do you like? Have yeah, that's mm. we have to insert that. We can't say like you anymore. Yes, like you the cake. Well, how did that happen? Mm. So, no one. It's weird when you have, if it, I always have fun asking linguists. Well, why did that? How did that happen? Why do we use doth? Where, 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 where did doth go? Doth was very good fun. Yeah. Why do we use doth? Back. Well, yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, why did why we're pretty certain that uh, people around in London would say do rather than do mm. because of the rhyming of the poems. Well, why did that happen? Well, of course. The interesting thing is, is it's almost impossible ever to answer that question. That's fine. But the point is, what it reveals is that language is constantly changing. You it's, know. In, it's in flux. Isn't it's it? in flux and it's in mm. flux now. Mm. You know, I sat on a bus a few weeks ago and I heard two blokes behind me talking. And I thought, I'm going to ask myself the question, do I know what I think are the cultural origins of these two blokes behind me? So they were talking, I won't imitate it, and I thought, I'm going to stick my neck out and say that I reckon that these two boys talking are of African-Caribbean origin, okay? Then I look round, and I don't know exactly, but it certainly wasn't the African-Caribbean. <laughs> I would guess it was either China uh, or certainly some, some way east of India anyway. Right. And it certainly wasn't the African-Caribbean. So what an incredible thing that in the melting pot of London, that this multicultural London English, as it's called, MLE, is so widespread, it goes across the young peoples living in London. Of course, London's not the only place people mm. are changing language. But there was an example of borrowing and shaping and using... Creoles. Exactly. Yeah. And no doubt they, in their speech also, not that I could hear it, were putting in words maybe that their parents were using mm. in the same way that um, I know that the pattern of language in my own family and the way in which people have used Yiddish and translated Yiddish. So even a phrase like, do me a favour, well, that's Yiddish, took me, took my own favour. Mm. Okay, so that came in. Or, you know, enjoy. Yeah, enough already. These are Yiddishisms that have been translated into English. Mm -hmm. Yeah? That's, that's enough already. Even enough is enough is probably a German Yiddish phrase. Genug is genug, my parents used to say. In fact, I knew genug is genug before I knew enough is enough. Mm. So these phrases... You know, they merge and blur, and I know that in my own life because of the languages my parents spoke. Again, you know, when it, when, I mean, A-level students do it when they do A-level language. Mm. 
That's the only place in schools where it goes on. That if Should you do A level language, try and get like a GCSE linguistics or something, or is that just yeah, good? yeah? There's a group of us mm. who've signed up. Said that that would be good. Uh, Ian Cushing uh, and some others in Nate National Association for Teachers of English said yes, but also I think it, as it would go back to my scrapbook model in primary schools mm. is that you could do this with through scrapbooks if you make the scrapbook mm-hmm. multi-dialectal multilingual and allow for that so or make language maps have fun with language maps my mum says my dad says i mean it's in my poems i put it in my poems in a way to hope that teachers will take it i've got a little poem uh, called do you lie to your mother which is about the fact that when my mum went out my dad had said shh don't tell your mother but let's have matzabrai so matzabrai is a dish where you take the matzahs it's where you take the matzahs uh, which are these kind of water biscuits that Jews have at Passover, but you can eat all the rest of the year. Okay. Um, and then you break them up, you soak them, and then you fry them with egg. And we absolutely adored it. But my dad said, Mum, your mother doesn't like it because she says it's too schmaltzy. That means too greasy. Yeah. Mm. And the way you make it is that you take the chicken fat off the chicken soup, mm. and that's how you cook it. So it has the flavor of chicken. Right, so it's yeah. a very greasy but beautiful tasting dish. But the old man said we weren't allowed to say, weren't allowed to tell mum. So in the poem, it's got the word hina schmaltz, which is chicken fat. Right, um, I forgot what else it's got, but anyway, mm. it's got some other Yiddish words, maybe bubba or something like that, which is for grandmother. So I quite often I put these Yiddish words into the poems in order to say to teachers, look, you you can ask the children to sort of put these home languages or home dialects into their poems or stories or just to look at them and have fun with them. Mm. You know, how do you say, what's your favourite cake? Well, you know, for most North London kids of Turkish or Greek origin, it's baklava. Well, there's no English word for baklava, you know, honey, phyllo, pastry, pistachio cake. Yeah, no, thank you. Just call it baklava. And in fact, there's a beautiful little phrase in Turkish uh, where we say spit it out. You know, come on, come on, talk to me, spit it out. Yeah. They say, take the baklava out of your mouth. Ah, nice. Because baklava, when you eat it, it sticks in your mouth, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, you, if you haven't got a cup of Turkish coffee or tea with it. Um, so so it's also embedded in, in a linguistic, in a proverb or an idiom. So baklava. So if you say, there is no other English word for it. So in their speech... Baklava just exists as a the thing that we have at the end of a meal. So maybe teachers can get, as the children are maybe exploring poetry and writing, they can just bring that multilingualism in and not be afraid of it. I always say to children when I'm doing anything that involves speech in a poem, and I do a variety of ways in which they can incorporate speech, I always say if you know those words in another language, then you can put them in. You know, a friend of my daughter's, her dad, German... He spoke because he wanted them to be bilingual. He did everything he could to speak in German to them, even though his English is perfect. Mm. So he made a huge effort, certainly when they were young, so that they could then, of course, also speak to their grandparents. Yes. You know, this is very important. So he kept the bilingualism going, sent them off to German school and so on. It's kind of faded away now that they're over 11 and 12. But um, certainly I remember going over there and it was amazing. You know, we would sit and talk and then he'd turn to the kiddie and say, you know, was machst du or something like that in German and turn back to us. And even though they spoke English and so it was like a multilingual table. Yeah. And it was 
absolutely fine. I mean, it was of course, of course, it was absolutely fine. I didn't think it was rude or anything. I mean, as it happens, I understand a little bit of German, but not yeah. not that much. But it didn't matter, did it? And then the child would answer in English, mm. and then you make do. I mean, well, you just you've, the thing is that you've got a common purpose. You're having a meal. It's yeah, a social exactly. situation, and in a classroom, you have to. But you know, I mean, you just think of the very, very worst example of an attitude in this country to language when the local radio host, uh, James O'Brien, was interviewing Nigel Farage, mm. and it was about the time of Brexit. And O'Brien asked him, you've, you've said that you object to people speaking other languages uh, out and about on public transport, but your wife is German. Uh, she was then, I think, his ex-wife. Yes. Your wife is German, and does she speak to the children in German? Yes, said Farage. So what's your objection? And he said, well, it's they're speaking in Romanian. And yeah. O'Brien said, well, what's the problem there? And Farage said, well, you know what I mean. Wow. And O'Brien said, no, I don't. And then there was a bit more dialogue, and I think then Farage walked out. So what's going on there? Well, first of all, Farage has accepted the fact that German is a high-status language, which, I mean, it is and it isn't. I mean, in some respects it is, but, you know, as it happens, German is spoken by very few people in terms of world languages compared, say, with Spanish and obviously the Chinese, Mandarin and, and, and Cantonese and obviously English. But he's decided that German is high status because I'm married to a woman who speaks German. And this woman is obviously culturally aware enough to speak to German to her kids like my mm -hmm. friend does. But then he's decided that Romanian is substatus. Romanians themselves are substatus. And so he's objecting to Romanians talking to each other in Romanian on station. So it's basically at the end of the day, it's xenophobic, if not racist. Mm -hmm. So he's actually saying these people, their language, their right to talk to each other. They have fewer rights than I have. They don't have the they're not entitled to talk to each other in their own language. So there you've got, if you like, I mean, it's the worst expression. I'm not saying everybody thinks like this, but it's the worst expression of an attitude to language that is intertwined with an attitude to people mm. and to a, a people, an attitude to yourself, who I am, what I'm entitled to, I speak English, but also with a lovely contradiction in the middle of it that one foreign language is okay and another one isn't. So as we know, the moment you kind of start burrowing down into xenophobias and racisms, you find classic illogics which just sit there as these kind of irresolvable lumps inside people's consciousness. Mm. Uh, but he was able to just sort of blurt this stuff out to the world. You would think it would be almost like, oh, I've just said something silly there, wouldn't you? I mean, if I said that, let's say I thought it, I don't. You know, well, well, yeah, now you pointed that out. It is a bit contradictory, isn't it, that I think it's all right for my missus to speak German and wrong for people on stations to be talking Romanian. But instead he kind of toughed it out mm. and said, well, you know what I mean. And the only thing he could possibly have meant was in fact a hierarchy, I would say a racialized hierarchy, but anyway, a hierarchy between... English and German, which are presumably up the top there, at the top of the pyramid, and Romanian somewhere lower down the ladder, mm. lower down the pyramid. I mean, I, I don't know, but, I mean, he indicated that with that horrible little phrase, you know what I mean, because he's talking to another white man in English. Mm. So he thinks that he can assume that that person will go, oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> Romanians, yeah, like that explains something. It's dreadful, isn't it? I mean, so I know it's an extreme example, but if you think this is a very popular politician who's, you know... Uh, appears on television and radio all the time, he was expressing an idea about language and about languages that, for me, is very, very significant precisely because is a xenophobic hierarchy. And that's 
at the heart of a lot of our problems in relation to language. Mm, it's really worrying, isn't it? Hopefully, if we did start in school to celebrate the diversity of the languages that the children bring in and that you know educating our younglings how to see and celebrate all of language regardless of where it's from or and the diversity of english yeah, i mean that's yeah. that's that's and the key thing you do itself. both exactly. Exactly. exactly and which tells you that no language is pure mm. i mean there are people always trying to make it pure but they always fail you know you cannot create i mean you could you, even dear old jonathan swift I think uh, mm. I think he objected to abbreviations. I think that's what Jonathan <laughs> Swift did because people at that time it's quite a funny story. He he um, uh, people used the word citizen, yes. but at the time people called them sits. So it became a little culty, fashionable thing to talk about sits. And he fumed, and you know he was furious in the way Dick, dear old Jonathan Swift. He was always getting <laughs> furious about something. Uh, he even got furious about blackheads, didn't he? Um, <laughs> you know, I mean blackheads in your skin. You know, and he got furious about all sorts of things. And um, so he got furious about abbreviations and he wrote some kind of infuriated satire on the fact that people are walking around using the word sit. And uh, I just think it, there's this urge to purify language and to say, oh, well, you know, the Queen speaks pure this. Or... Well, the Queen's English, that awful note that was posted up in a block of flats after Brexit. Did you see that? And it said that, you know, nobody should speak any other languages than the Queen's English in this block of flats. And they hadn't sort of punctuated Queen's English correctly. And, you know, it was yeah. full of irony. Of Well, we did a funny mm. thing on word of mouth about the Queen's English. It's quite interesting. If mm. you play her Christmas broadcasts, so here is a highly contrived performative use of language absolutely fine the speech the address to the country and so on so it's it's got a regular controlled shape and you take it from her first one and you take it to her most recent ones mm. and you put phonetician on it and say has anything changed boy has it changed yeah it's really fascinating so whereas she had one way of saying a word like might or i cannot and you take it through mm. and you can find it changing across the, the however many years it is since 1952 or three when she did her first one. And so her voice has changed. So even in tiny ways, and you would think you couldn't think of anything more stable. In fact, mm. we always use that word than the monarch and the monarchy. And you might imagine that the queen in her, you know, this age uh, would it would be more or less the same as the way she spoke in her 20s. And in fact, not. She's actually changed. So the phonetician I worked with on it, he spotted that she did this terrible crime that teachers used to stop us doing, which is using the glottal stop. Ah. So, you know, saying but, a little bit like that, but the tiny little examples of glottal stops uh, that he spotted that she uses, that some of the ways her vowel sounds have changed. Um, so, you know, there are subtle shifts in language, because the way we speak, the how of the way of, of the sound in which we speak is all part of language. So there's you couldn't think of a more stable example. And so you can never find purity. No, it's constantly shifting. Yeah. And that's beautiful. In itself, yeah, indeed. Isn't it? indeed. So I've got one final question. It's very important. It's for my four year old and it's about the bear hunt. So he, he is one of the children who thinks the bear's very lonely at the end. And he would like to know when he goes back to the cave, are they throwing him a surprise party? They are if your four-year-old thinks so. That's what I've told him, if he yes. would like it to be so. And, and he could draw it. He could draw the party and he could invent a song they're singing at the party. Hmm. He could tell them he could make up all the foods that they're having at the party. 
Um, and it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because your four-year-old has come up with a resolution. Mm. It's a homecoming. Because what's disturbing about their picture, which I'm nothing to do with, that entirely comes from Helen Oxenbury, is that it disobeys the rule of children's literature. The rule of children's literature is you get home. So whether that's a resolution, you know, that people get on all right in the end, or whether it really is a physical home, right? But that is the thing. The thing is resolved. Think of Wind in the Willows. It is resolved. Toad gets back home. The weasels and the stoats are chucked out mm. and everything goes back to the way it was before or something like it. That is the sort of formal pattern of children's books. And indeed it does. You get you go back to bed and they all get into the bed. We're not going on a bear hunt again. Right. So they're all in the bed. They're all safe. It's okay. Turn over the page. <gasps> You've broken the rules of children's books because mm. we've got a lonely bear going who knows where to do who knows what. It's a big question mark. It's almost like finishing a book with a gigantic question mark. So your son is disturbed by that at a level because it also breaks the rules of attachment. You know, who is this bear attached to? Mm. He's a little boy. He's attached to you. So that's life. Life is attached to somebody else. That's the most, you know, the prime relationship for him. This bear is unattached. So it's all right at the beginning of a book. Mm -hmm. That's when you're lost, like the little, three little owls, you know, who are waiting for mummy to come back. I want my mummy. Yeah. Right? Attach, attach, attach. <laughs> right? So, so then what Helen's done that's so clever is saying to the reader, well, what do you think? Mm. Now, of course, that's quite tricky for some little children, obviously your four-year-old, but he solved it. He's yeah. cracked the problem. Yeah. He created this beautiful scene of them all sitting down. Having a tea party, absolutely brilliant. I think you 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 explore that and say to him, yeah, let's draw it. Let's you know, just because you know, they've made a book, we can make a book. So yeah. have the tea party and what they're all saying. Put big speech bubbles above them all, what they're saying, and uh, and you can tell him from me that that is absolutely right. It's exactly right. Thank you so much, Michael. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me.